You know, a lot of times we live our lives just sort of following a, an assumed, presumed cultural script, kind of a cultural map of what we're supposed to do at whatever age, you know, when you're such and such age, you're supposed to be in second grade, and we just kind of follow that pattern of just the cultural assumptions of, of what we're supposed to do to live our lives, and not really asking whether or not these things are the most important things in life, especially as we get older. Is, is really what I'm doing the most important thing for me to spend so much time doing? John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, has a challenging phrase. He says it this way. He says, do you ever catch yourself with a sneaking suspicion that you'll wake up on your deathbed with the nagging sense that somehow in all the hurry and busyness and frenetic activity, you missed the most important things? I like that sentence because I see it happen all the time as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 20-something years, and people have been in my office over those years, especially as you get a little older in life, you start thinking about these things a little more. And people in my office, uh, you know, you, you sort of, you, you, you start a business or a career only to lose a marriage or family, to end a marriage, to end a family. You get your kids to the right colleges, but somehow you forgot to teach them the way of Jesus. You spend a lot of effort and time, money to get the right letters after your name, and then you learn the hard way that education is not the same thing as wisdom. There's a lot of things like that that people say in the years of coming to these realizations of regrets of did they really do the most important things with all the, the hurry and the busyness and the frenetic activity that the cultural script is driving us to do. And one of the things that I see a lot in people when I talk to them is this realization that, that all this frenetic activity, all this busyness, all this hurry Somehow they forgot. Somehow they just thought they'd get to it sometime, but somehow they just never did for themselves or their, or their family become part of the body of Christ on earth where God lives in us and lives in one another as followers of Christ and everything that that means. And realizing later in life that that was one of the most important things they wish they had done. We're in a sermon series right now on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've been doing kind of a, a, a Bible study kind of sermon series. We, we gave everyone who wants one a study guide to the book of Ephesians that one of our staff wrote, uh, and just sort of people that want to can prepare each week beforehand by doing their own personal Bible study, and then they come and we, we, pre we preach on that section of Ephesians, and we're at the midway point. The first three chapters, Paul has been saying through this incredible elevated language. Now, he's in prison in Rome, but he is entirely elevated in his excitement for these people that are reading his letter that all that God is for us in Jesus and this life, this what he calls the hope of your calling. And calling kind of has this idea of God actually choosing you, wanting you, and, and God bringing you into this incredible story of what he has done, made you alive 
alive together with Christ and raised you together with Christ and has this seating you together with Christ in this realm that's going to come when heaven comes back to earth and this elevated language of this glorious inheritance and the hope to which you've been called. It's really a whole three chapters on all that God is for you, has done for you in Jesus. And now at this halfway part, the last three chapters, he's going to basically have you wrestle with this question. Is this really what you want for your life? Here's how he begins it in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, as a prisoner, now he's in prison because he won't stop proclaiming his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, a lot of times you see that word worthy, and we think, no, wait a minute, did he, just, did he just erase the first three chapters? I thought it was what God did, not what we did. And it's kind of tricky because this Greek word that he wrote in that's translated in the English word worthy, a lot of times in the Bible it means not deserving of, but reflecting the value of living a life that reflects the value of the calling. So it's not being worthy of the calling. It's living a life that reflects the value of the calling. And so he's going to give a list of things to do in these next three chapters. Here's how you live a life that fits with, that reflects this incredible worth of the calling that God has done, all that God is for you in Christ. And so the very first thing he says Here's what you do. Here's the very first thing you do to live a life that reflects this incredible worth of the calling that God has given you, of all that God has done for you in Christ. And we might think it might be, what should I do? Try to find the climb, climb the highest mountain and hoist the Christian flag? What is it that I'm, the first thing I'm supposed to do? Well, here it is, verse two. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Now, this word bearing with one another could easily be translated putting up with one another. And the simplest, I suppose the most simplistic view that a lot of us read that verse is that we assume we're the ones that are normal and rational, and we're being called to put up with others who are sinful and irritating people. Okay, I gotta be, okay, here's how I live a life worthy of who all that God has done for me. I need to be patient with people. I need to put up with other people. I'm the rational one. I'm the normal one. Forgetting that Paul says one another. He's talking with everybody. So for some, you're the one that another has to be patient with, has to really work at being humble toward because you irritate them, has to be gentle toward, has to put up with. Because we all think we're the ones that are normal and anybody who doesn't get us, that's, they're the ones that are wrong. It reminds me of this photo I saw of the Olympics 2016 in, in Rio uh, at the, in, the, in Brazil I don't know if you remember seeing this, but this was, these are the coaches of the Mongolian wrestling team. And they were standing before the judges protesting the decision against their wrestlers in the Olympics. Now, these are obviously smart guys. They're, they're Olympic coaches. 
But somehow in their culture, it made perfect sense to stand in your underwear before the, the judges to show how displeased you were with their decision. And in some sense, if you read ancient literature like the Bible, you actually see that in the Bible. When somebody was really upset with something, they would render their clothing. So there is some cultural understanding there. Somehow it gets lost in translation when others look at it. it does not make it the message isn't getting through. But to them, it makes perfect sense. Now, here's the thing. We all come into relationships, our various communities, our marriages, where we work, our, our church relationships, our community, whatever communities you're in, we all come into those shaped by our cultural past in some way that, that makes it hard for us to be, we make certain assumptions of when I do this, when I say this, how I am is normal and everybody else should get me. And we're not really understanding that, that, that oneness Having it makes it hard to have a oneness in our one anotherness because we're all coming with different past, whether it was a family we were raised in or whether how our parents treated us or whether it was just life circumstances or the entertainment we've watched or whatever it is that has shaped our assumptions and it makes it hard to have oneness in our one anotherness. So that's that's why. Paul says in the very next word, verse, he says this in verse three, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Now, okay, you're thinking, okay, that he just means really try hard. But here's the thing. When you look at this one single Greek word that's translated into English into those three words, make every effort. The other places it's used in the Bible, it's on a very short list of other places it's used in the Bible. It's not used very often. It's used when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, make every effort as a pastor to be the kind of man, the kind of person that God wants to use in ministry. And so it's one of the most sobering parts of the letter. It's when the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, make every effort to enter into the promise of God's rest rather than falling in the desert of unbelief. It's one of the most sobering chapters in the entire epistle of Hebrews. Peter says the same kind of thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. Make every effort to remain in your calling so that you receive the promise of the kingdom of God. These are really sobering places in the Bible. So this is the other one right here. It must be a really big deal to God. We must not be quite getting how big of a deal it is to God so that Paul uses this word, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit of God that created the entire universe. Don't jack with the Spirit of God. You see, here's the thing that it's impossible for us to do this. Be patient with one another, be humble, bearing with one another, you know, putting up with one another, being gentle. It's impossible to do that when you're looking down on other people. Instead of looking up at this incredible transcendent mystery that is in the one another of the community of those who follow Christ. There is this vertical reality 
that the one another has. It's not just horizontal. And you have to see this vertical reality in order to see this transcendent mystery. So that's why, and just stay with me here. That's why he says here in verse four, he says, there is one body and one spirit. In other words, ultimately, there's one capital B body of Christ on earth. There's one capital C church on earth, ultimately. There's one spirit that, has in, that indwells every single follower of Christ and every church of followers of Christ that created the entire universe. There's just, just as you were called to one hope, there's one, one hope that he says in chapter one is the future, the, the future inheritance that we have. There's just one that's, that when you were called, one Lord, that's Jesus in the epistles, one faith, that's the word of truth, the message of your, your salvation, he says in chapter one, verse 13. There's one baptism. Now, we have all kinds of different ways we do it, but ultimately it signifies the one belonging to the people of God. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, catch this. This is really heavy, elevated language. He's saying this. Make every effort to keep the unity. No, go back. Sorry. Sorry make every effort to keep the unity of the God and Father who is of all and over all and in all and through all. You have to, you have to see this transcendent mystery in order to understand what it really is that is the body of Christ and what the one another, who the one another really are. You have to see the vertical reality. You can't even pray the very first word of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, without seeing every other follower of Jesus as part of the same family you're in, and you have the same Father. And the same Spirit that created the universe and the same Spirit that is the presence of God on earth that inhabits every single follower of Jesus is the same Spirit that's in you and the same God that binds you together over all, of all, through all, in all. So he says, and let's go to that next slide, make every effort to keep that transcendent mystery of the Holy Spirit. Now here's a question. How much of an effort are you willing to make? Don't just follow the cultural script. Don't just mindly follow the cultural map. The church is easy to criticize. How much effort are you willing to make? Because this is one thing that's for sure true, that your calling, the hope of your calling, all that God has done for you in Christ is for sure not merely personal. It is, but it's not merely personal. Because he says in verse seven, he says, but to each one of us, so that's personal, each one, every single, each one of us, every single individual that's part of this community, each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Verse 11, he says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers, to equip his people for works of service, works of ministry, so that the body of Christ, there's that word again, over and over in this epistle, may be built up. He goes on and he says, until we all reach unity, there's that word again, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He says in verse 14, then we will no longer be infants. The Apostle Paul, part of this we, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. See, here's the reality. When, you're, when you become a Christian, the very trinity of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit resides in you makes you alive together with Christ, raise you together with Christ, seats you together with Christ in the heavenly realm. God lives in you, but you come into that state a baby. You're alive. You're just as much of alive as you ever will be, but you're a spiritual baby. You're an infant. That's just normal. And we have to grow to maturity. But like real babies who don't always know what they should eat. I mean, you got to be careful what they see because they're going to pick up stuff and put it in their mouth. And it might be a Cheerio or it might be something really gross or it might be something really poisonous. And in the same way, Paul says that spiritual babies, spiritual infants don't always know what's good teaching versus what's stupid teaching or what's actually poisonous teaching that's going to destroy them in their faith. It's going to toss them like waves, the wind of teaching and waves on the water that's going to make them topsy-turvy in their faith. Because see, when we're not involved in a good church, we can be easily convinced by people who sound like they're making a good argument. And often it's easy to be the most influenced by people who aren't part of any kind of a church leadership. They're just in their basement writing a blog and it becomes a book. And it's okay to read them. I'm not saying don't. But if that is your major source of teaching and you're not connected to the good teaching in a church that is part of Christ's body, it's going to be easy for you to be convinced and deceived by every wind of teaching that's going to blow you and it's going to toss you like waves on the sea. And, and so here's the thing, is that when you're a spiritually infant, spiritual infant, you need to be a part of a church that's going to take responsibility to help you grow in the truth. And that's what he says in verse 15. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love. That's what we do with one another, not just the leadership. In love, we're just helping each other grow. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow from spiritual infancy to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Here's what I want you to catch. I hear a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who are turned off when they see immature Christians in the church, as if there's something wrong with the church. But here's the thing. Every growing church the good thing about a growing church is it's going to have lots of spiritual infants because there's going to be new believers. It's going to be filled with a lot of immature Christians who say really stupid stuff on social media, say really stupid stuff when they're involved in politics, say really stupid stuff when they're making arguments or when they're just living their life or when they're buying certain things or when they're however it is how they treat their family. How they're going to say infant kind of stuff and they're going to do infant kind of things. And, and that is 
a normal part of what Paul says is part of growing as a Christian. See, a very good church is going to have a lot of spiritual babies, which means it's going to be filled with a lot of poopy diapers, spiritually speaking. If there are a lot of poopy diapers in your church, now those who know me knows I'm going to run with this poopy diaper thing, but if there's a lot of poopy diapers in your church, you're in the right church. A lot of messy people. A lot of spiritual babies doing spiritually immature stuff. That's the right church because that's the place God is working. That's a really, really, really good thing. But you're critical of the poopy diapers. You don't want poopy diapers because in your mind, you want to disconnect from the body of Christ when there's poopy diapers. But does that really make any sense to you? Because how you grow, how people grow, is by being involved in the church. And that's where the immature people should be. That's where the spiritual babies should be. That should be the church that's filled with poopy diapers, spiritual speaking. That's the last time I'll say it. He says in verse 16, from him, the last verse, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. This is all imagery. Every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part, it's just like verse seven, each of us, each part does its work. Each part is an important ligament. Each part has an important role. Here's the thing. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ and you have God residing in you, you belong to the church. You belong in the community of the followers of Christ. Do you live like you belong? Do you live your life like you belong? Is that your map? Or are you letting some cultural script keep you criticizing the church and keep you on the outside looking in and you're trying to find a church that's worthy of you because you don't want to be associated with immature Christians? You belong. And as as each part does its work, that's how you grow and that's how immature Christians grow. That's what God does. That's how God does it. See, the culture is always trying to shrink your life down, always trying to get you to embrace reductionistic identities, always trying to shrink your life down to their cultural script. And it's a very low ceiling, this cultural script. It doesn't have a lot of transcendent mystery, this cultural script. It's just based on a material life, and then it becomes dust in the end. They're not even sure why there should be justice. They're not even sure if love is real. They're not even sure what it is that life is about. But everybody's judging one another in this cultural script. But is that really the cultural script you want to be driven by? Because, see, the words in Ephesians are not reductionistic. What God wants is grow. God wants to expand you. God wants your growth. God wants your maturity. The words in Ephesians are glory and beauty and radiance. This incredible riches, the immeasurable riches of his grace for you in Christ, the immeasurable riches of Christ for you, this this hope of your inheritance, the riches of your inheritance. It's this big life that God wants for you. And when you walk into that big life by being as each part of us does our work so that we grow and we help the church grow, that's when we experience the transcendent mystery in this life. 
of the gospel. Let's pray. As part of our prayer, let's take a moment and just use our biblically guided, biblically guided imagination to see exactly what this verse says is true, that the Spirit of God that created this universe, the Spirit of God himself, God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit resides in every single follower of Christ. Just the same. A spiritual baby is just as alive as an adult. Just the same. The same Spirit, the same God, the same Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. Imagine that reality right now in those around you, in your spouse, in those around you that, oh, you're not sure you want to be associated with them. You don't, it's hard to put up with them. It's hard to be patient with them. They're so proud. You're not sure you want to be associated with them, and they make you cringe when they talk. I want you to imagine our Father in them. Our Father loving them, looking at them, rejoicing over them as his children. The Spirit of God in them, calling you to make every effort to not screw this up, but to to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us even more as we are a church of your followers, that we would truly be humble and be gentle and be patient with one another and put up with one another and help others to put up with us because we know we're the one that another has to put up with and that we would grow into maturity as each of us does our part. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you stand to receive God's blessing? From Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, what better verse? May God open the eyes of your heart so that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance for you in Christ and his incomparably great power for those who believe his promises. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.